0: Before we start, I want to let you know about this amazing all-in-one podcasting platform called Listener.fm. Listener helps you record, edit, distribute, and monetize your podcast all in one place. With just one click, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and others. Check it out at Listener.fm. That's L-I-S-T. FM. all right johnny so let's start with the very first question which everybody would be thinking that how do you get introduced to sean and how was it working with him because sean is right now a big twitter celebrity and everybody wants everybody's going after him right now like hey uh what what was it working at babo how did this twitch thing happen everybody's following him so yeah how was it working with him how did you find him
1: yeah totally um sean was a sean was my first mentor i'd say he uh, he taught me a lot about startup building and the way I found him actually was a funny story. Um, so I'm born and raised in San Francisco. I've lived here my whole life um, and as such I've kind of always been surrounded by startups. I've known from a really young age that I wanted to be part of a team accomplishing something. There's Something about people working together on a really hard goal, a really small team and achieving it, that's just the most beautiful feeling in the world. And so I knew I wanted to be around that energy. Um, I started coding when I was about maybe 10 or 12, just online stuff, um, very basic JavaScript, very basic HTML, Um, and I quickly realized I wasn't gonna be able to teach myself enough to be able to fit in with those teams. I needed help, I needed mentors, I needed somebody I could learn from, some examples, I needed to know who to model myself after. And so I started asking everybody I could find, hey, I need a startup internship this summer, do you know anybody who could be a good fit? I won't be a pain, you won't even know I'm there, I'm going, I literally I think use the term, I'll learn by osmosis. I'll sit mm. behind your devs, you won't notice I'm there, I'm just going to absorb whatever they're doing and get better from it. Um, I really wanted to minimize the amount of uh, pain that I would be causing. Why would some random startup want like a 14 year old kid to come and sit in their office all day? That's just a pain in the ass. Um, so, I actually, it was in a dog park that I met a guy named Pete, um, Pete was a neighbor of mine he had a kid who was about the same age as me, and we ran into each other at the dog park, and I was telling him about my search for a summer internship. Um, Pete was working at Bebo at the time, actually. So he was okay ops, so I later took over for Pete to fast forward a couple years. Um, by the time, I didn't know that. And so I asked Pete, hey, how can I come work with you in your office around people like you help me? Um, he was not in a position to offer me a job. He could not guarantee anything. The only thing he could tell me was, here's Sean's email, do your best. And so I got Sean's email. Um, it was like his personal Gmail at the time. And I sent him an email. And I said, hey Sean, I'm Johnny. I want to come and watch your devs. I want to learn by osmosis. I don't know what I'm doing, but I want to do something like what you're doing. Um, and I think he didn't respond to my first email. I think it was maybe the second or third that he had respond to. And he was like, all right, let's talk. We got on a phone call, um, and it was very obvious. You know, he was trying to figure out how can this kid be helpful. Is he gonna? Can he like, tell, get a bunch of teenagers to use it? Can he actually write good code? No. Um, can he get his school to use our product? He was trying to find ways to make it useful. After about ten or so emails and conversations, we finally he agreed. Yeah, you can come and help for the summer. So, that was the that was how we met initially. Um, really just trying and trying and trying, talking to everybody. I could trying to get any connection I could. And then the second I got a connection working, working as hard as I could, constantly following up, um, sending new emails, checking in, not being a pain, um, but making yeah. sure that I was top of mind.
0: Yeah. Did you put all your eggs into Sean or were you also exploring other options over there?
1: I was exploring a couple other options at the time, but I don't think anything was near as cool as Bebo. Um, other options were I actually got an offer from my school to come and okay. like do some IT work for them over the summer. Um, would have paid, but that was fun. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, anyone, anyone do you can know hang
0: out? Group. Do you know hang out at all dog parks now? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, dog parks over over IT rooms. Um, yeah, and I think there was a, another opportunity of this company called Saildrone, which was doing okay. like um, automatic ocean monitoring. They basically built like surfboards that had um, salinity monitors in them and they were just sitting them loose on the world to measure the world's oceans. I think they're doing some really cool stuff now. Um, Who knows what that could have been, but I was more interested in software than hardware at the time.
0: That's pretty cool, man. So where was your mind at when you were deciding that, hey, coding is something that you would be good at?
1: Yeah, so it was actually um, a result of video games. I think Hmm. many programmers get into coding because of video games, and I'm no exception to that. When I was little, I played Legend of Zelda all the time. Me and my best friend would be playing it 20 hours a day. And there came a day when I realized, oh shoot, I'm not going to be able to do this for the rest of my life. I have to grow up at some point, and I have to like, get a job, and I can't, can't just play video games all day? That's no fun. So I went to my parents and I asked them, hey, how can I do this for the rest of my life? I just want to play video games. How can I do that? And then I'm very appreciative of my parents. They uh, didn't immediately laugh at me. Um, They said, cool, if you want to do that, you can become a game developer. To do that, you have to go learn how to code. If you do that, you can do games for the rest of your life. That was kind of my foray into, oh, what is this thing called code? What can I do with it? Um, Very quickly realized I did not want to be a game developer. It's very hard. Much respect if you are one, but I am not nearly as dedicated as that. and that was kind of when I fell in love with
0: software. That's cool, man. Yeah, mostly, most of the software engineers that I know, most of my friends, they're big gamers and, but yeah, game development industry, that is hard. Uh, we hear a lot about the churn rate over there. We hear a lot about the stress uh, going on over there. It's all super hard to create uh, a tension engine when there are already so many games out there. Uh, that's, that's difficult, man. But all right, so how was your first year at Be- uh, Bebo?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I'd emailed Sean a good amount of times now. He had agreed to let me come in um, and we had a date set. So I was supposed to show up at 10 AM on that day for my first day of internship. I had no idea what to expect. I was still hoping to kind of come and just sit, maybe meet a couple of engineers and I'll just figure out what they're doing, get a lay of the land. Hmm. So I showed up, um, Pete opened the door for me. I walked up to the office and he introduced me to Sean in person for the first time. Sean gave me a quick office tour and then sat me down. And I think this was a really major moment for me. He sat me down and said, Johnny, you know Buzzfeed quizzes? I need you to build me that. Um, It works for virality. He explained the whole concept of viral loops. He'd explained some of the um, genius that goes into Buzzfeed quizzes and how they're able to bring people together. It's a great way to make a friend, invite another friend to a platform. And he said, we want to do this. Can you build me a prototype by the end of the day? And I said yes. <laughs> um, I had no idea how to do it, but what was I going to say? No, after I did all this work to get into this room and he gives me a project and I'm going to say no? No, of course not. Um, so he really blindsided me, I think, with that initial project, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I, I went and sat in a corner, um, I opened CodePen, signed up for an account, uh, learned a lot of tutorials, and built a very basic quiz, BuzzFeed quiz platform that I demoed to him later that day.
0: That's cool, man. I actually saw the demo over there. Uh, it's very rough prototype. I actually, I think I, think I actually played with it. Uh, what was it about? It was about some city, right? Like what city uh, would you like to go to? Yeah. Something like that.
1: It was uh, what city should you actually live in? So it asked you questions mm. like, you know, what yeah. do you do on the weekends? What's your t- type of food? Stuff like that to tell you. Totally arbitrary. <laughs> right. Right. It was some, some 14 year old logic, but um, it was a fun project, and it kind of got me used to prototyping. Like you said, very rough prototype. It had horrible animation. It had typos. It had bugs. There's all sorts of issues with it, but I think Sean recognized that in that first day, I did something, and that is so much monumentally larger than nothing. Um, even if it was bad, even if it was a shitty prototype, it has lots of room to grow. I did something. If you're gonna do something, then you're gonna make it better. Like he knew that the next day I would come back and I would do the same amount of effort. So if I just keep doing that every day, we'll get somewhere good. It doesn't have to be good on the first day. And I think that, uh, that ability to do, or that drive to do, that bias for action, as people say, um, is really critical. And it was because he made me do something on the first day that I realized how powerful it was. And I think he, he realized that in me too.
0: Definitely. How old were you then? 15?
1: I believe I was 14 at the time.
0: 14. That's crazy, man.
1: This was the summer right after middle school, right before high school. Um, At least that's kind of how my schooling system worked when I was little.
0: Right. And I'm curious, how was the office? Because office is something that he talks a lot about, the Monkey Inferno office.
1: Yeah, the Monkey Inferno office was amazing. Um, We were super lucky to have it. Um, It was some of the best... People I've ever worked with in one yeah. of the most gorgeous offices offices I've ever yeah. worked in. Um, we had, you know, you know, we had lots of amenities. It was really easy to be focused. We we're all kind of an, in an open floor plan. We we're all together as one big team. Um, we had like a, a lunch room. We would all eat lunch together, kind of as a as a family almost. Um, there's a lot of uh, really great team building that happened there.
0: That's cool. So walk me through the entire time when you were at Bebo. what were you building what were you doing and how it led up to you taking on a bigger responsibility over there
1: yeah so i think the most important thing for that is to understand a little bit about what Bebo was trying to do
0: Hmm.
1: um we weren't doing one product in my time there i think we probably went through about a dozen different products um we had the mandate of build a billion dollar company or bust and we had a ton of resources to do that so we were constantly trying things, and if it wasn't going to have the potential to be a billion dollar company, we would shut it down. So we got really used to iterating quickly on product, and we get, became really skilled at spinning up a new product, scale it, decide if it's gonna work, shut it down or not. Um, because of that, my the projects I worked on varied a lot um, over mm-hmm. the various years. I started as a front-end engineer, um, very basic code pen, jQuery, JavaScript, building basically widgets for a group FaceTime application, which was our first application that I joined for. So I was building things like um, Cards Against Humanity or Connect Four in JavaScript widgets that could be played while you were in a group FaceTime with your friends. Hmm. Um, Over the course of the years, I I scaled up to kind of be more full stack, learned about backend, learned about full stack development, um, just trying to fit in wherever I could. I really realized if I'm gonna keep coming every day, every day I need to be adding value. I can never be a nu- nuisance. If I'm a nuisance, yeah. I'm just gonna get kicked out. Why, why would a 14-year-old, 15-year-old kid be here? So I made it impossible for me to be useless. Um, if there was a project that didn't have enough people, I would learn whatever language needed to, I needed to learn to help there, I'd learn whatever skills, I would study whatever architecture, I would study whatever stack. Um, so I really did a lot, I was kind of a jack of all trades, front end, full stack, mm. back end, and then eventually ended up on DevOps.
0: Makes sense. So you don't have an official title over there.
1: I think software engineer. Um, okay, that's what we all were. were. Just somebody who's building, somebody who's making it better.
0: Makes sense. And how did your parents react? Were you living in the office or were you still living at home?
1: I was living at home. Um, okay. And you know, I started going to high school in, during this process as well. So I uh, I was living at home the whole time. My parents, I think, were keeping an eye on me. Um, <laughs> yeah. They were seeing that I was doing this more and more. It was starting to impact my schoolwork. Hmm. They actually, um, after that initial summer, they made me take a break. So I was about to start high school um, and they were really concerned. They were like, is Johnny gonna be able to do high school and a full-time job at the same time? Probably not. Um, so they made me take my first semester off of work and said, okay. hey, let's make an agreement here. Um, they didn't make me, it sounds very forced. It was, it was a mutual yeah. <laughs> Um Let's see if I can do school too. So. Hmm. For the first semester, prioritize school. You can get all A's and then prove that you can do that well, um, and then you can go back to school or go back to work. So I think that was the best semester of school I've ever had because I really wanted to go back to work. <laughs> it was the only semester I've ever gotten all A's. Um, and at the end of that, they kind of realized oh, Johnny can actually manage school and work at the same time. Um, and I did that for about two years. Now, it started to become less sustainable as my mm-hmm. work scaled up we were starting to succeed as a company, and I was under a lot of responsibility I had a lot of work that I had to do and my school was scaling up too in a junior year of high school for for us is like the hardest year um, because it's right before college admissions and I was right at the end of my sophomore year when I realized i wasn't going to be able to do this I was sleeping basically four hours a night my schedule was wake up at seven, get to school by eight, work into, or go to school until three or four, get to work at four or five, stay there until one or two, and then get home by like two or three, do homework for an hour, sleep for two to three hours, and then wake up again at seven. So That's very much not a sustainable lifestyle. Um, yeah. I was pretty unhealthy and pretty unhappy. I knew something had to change. And so that was when I decided to go pro. It's kind of how we have talked about it, Of um, actually graduate out of high school early and dedicate myself to this full-time responsibility that I was undergoing of working at Bebo.
0: That's cool. So your parents were overall very supportive about for you, but they just wanted to also, they, obviously parents care about that. Parents want to know that, hey, you're doing good, you're going to school, you're getting a degree, getting a college, uh, stuff like that.
1: You know, end of the day, it's incentive alignment. My mm-hmm. parents want what's best for me. They want me to be happy. Yeah. Want me to be successful. They want me to be healthy. I want the same things. I want yeah. to be happy. I want to be successful. And I want to be healthy. The question is, how do we get there? And right. I think there was a knob that, or a, a light bulb that kind of came on for me and my family of, oh, hey, school actually isn't going to get us to that goal. Um, hmm. There's this really exciting opportunity that would be a waste to pass up. Um, we definitely wouldn't be happy or successful if we just ignored it. Um, yeah. Like, well, okay, so we should do something with it. I'm also doing school. That has a way to make me happy and successful in the future. But doing both at the same time really isn't working. So the agreement we actually came to was I would take a year gap and I would go and do working full time for one year. Um, and at the end of that, see where we're at. Was this gonna make me happier and more successful and healthier? Was it gonna help us achieve those goals? And after that first year, we were in the midst of getting acquired by Twitch um, and hmm. I was on track to be the youngest engineer at Amazon. Um, so we decided we were doing pretty well and um, decided not to go back to school.
0: <laughs> so you mentioned that your Sean was, Sean had a meeting set up with your parents. So let's continue from there.
1: Yeah, so Sean and my parents had a meeting um, and I think from where Sean was sitting, this idea of dropping out really wasn't the phrase he was using. Hmm. He really saw me as somebody who was actually contributing to the team Um, I was a legitimate professional tier player of this growing startup. And he actually drove an analogy to to athletes. Um, Think of, Michael Jordan was an incredible basketball player even in high school. And so he went pro from high school. It didn't make sense for him to go to college or continue the high school education because he was already doing something um, to such a high level of competency that it only made sense to double down on that. Very similar analogy is what Sean made to me of, I wasn't about to drop out of high school. I was about to go pro. I was about to um, elevate out of high school and continue my career at an earlier age. And I think explaining that to my parents, that kind of difference in phrasing of, Johnny's about to go pro. He's I'm not keeping around just for fun. He's actually contributing. He's actually an important member of our team. We'd be worse off without him. When my parents understood that, I think that was a big turning point of, okay, you're actually kind of legit. How do we make this successful? how do we how do we do more here?
0: My question was that Sean is obviously a really good storyteller right now. Was he also a really good storyteller back then?
1: Yes, very much so. Um, I think even even back then, Sean was the best storyteller of our team. Um, he couldn't tell any story, and we would all be very behind it. Um, and he was like the framework king. Hmm. I think he he still really much is, but Every every other week, he would come in with a new idea of how to think about what we were doing, or a new framework for us to think through, and he would pitch them to us and put Bebo through that lens. And it was a great way to get everybody on the team really aligned on strategy: what are we doing as a company? Why are we doing it? Um, but also to build us all up into really powerful product builders. I think I I touched on this earlier, but an engineer at Bebo was not somebody who writes code and hmm. takes a item off of a JIRA list and does it. Every single member of the BUBO team was very dedicated to how do we make this product better. We didn't have PMs, we only had product builders. So if I had an idea for a feature or an idea that a customer would be interested in, I would go DM the customer and say, hey, do you want this thing? I have this idea. If they said yes, I'd bring it to the rest of the team and say, hey, we should build this. Here's what I think we should do. Or else I'd just start building it myself. I think. Um, we were very comfortable with each other as a team and we worked very well together with a ton of individual autonomy and because we were very capable members each, thanks to, in large part, Sean just coming through with so many frameworks and so many stories of how to understand what we were working on.
0: Definitely, that makes sense.
1: It was the best learning experience I've ever had. Yeah,
0: is there a framework that you still use at, I'm, I'm guessing you will use most of them, but is there a really good framework that you still use at your company?
1: Yeah, plenty of them. Um, I, I've learned everything I, everything I know about startup building from, from that. Um, I think one of the ones that I am particularly a fan of and that Sean talks about fairly often is the idea of the skateboard, scooter, and car. Um, this is a, a product building framework that we used to develop MVPs. Um, the, the basic premise is, like, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I need to go over there, hmm.
0: um,
1: build me something to make that happen. There's two things you can do. You can sit down and you can design a Lamborghini and say, give me two years, I'll give you a Lamborghini. Or you can take some wheels and a stick and tie them together and say, here's a skateboard, now you can get there. The latter um, is is what most people do. Or sorry, the former is what most people do of, I need to build the perfect version of this. What's the best way to get people across distance? But the latter is actually what people want. They need to get there today. Maybe a skateboard isn't the perfect solution, but it's better than nothing. The next day he'll come back and say, hey, that skateboard kind of worked, but there's a grassy patch and it was really slow on the grassy patch. Can you give me a better system? Great, give him a bicycle. Now you've learned something about the terrain he's going across. Maybe maybe instead of building that Lamborghini, you'd build a a jet ski. That's completely useless now. You spent all this effort to, to build this really complex end result, but it wasn't what he wanted. By building the skateboard first, upgrading that to a bike, upgrading that to a motorcycle, upgrading that to a car, upgrading that to a Lamborghini, now every step along the way, your customer is happy, you're learning more about what they want next, and you're able to get to that Lamborghini with much more confidence. So that was a framework that we used a lot of, build just the skateboard. Mm. What's the minimal thing that satisfies the customer in this moment um, that we can take up, take and make into this version two in the future.
0: This is really interesting. Uh, do you also think this really applies to b2c startups or basically yeah b2c startups not to b2b right because in b2c spe- especially the game or the area where you were playing in with people you had customers who had these really quick wants that were able that you guys were able to satisfy with building quick minimal things
1: i think um it's certainly easier in a b2c world where you know you have Likely hundreds or thousands of customers that you can go, or users that you can go talk to, as opposed to B two B tends to be smaller quantity of customers, though larger ticket size. And um, I don't think it's it's purely applies in B two C though. Okay. We, we use it today in B two B world as well. Um, I think the the idea of understand what the customer really needs to do, and solve that, is a really important philosophy for all product building. Right. So in B two B world, you might have to have less people that you talk to, or you might have to have a Um, a little bit more polish on the product, but you can always find a way to solve the problem without spending years on it.
0: Right, right. And being a product manager, we read a lot about like, you know, frameworks, we read a lot about different strategies. Uh, With regards to MVP, minimum valuable product or minimum viable product, I know there are people who are using these terms like minimum lovable products. Uh, Everybody's coming up with different frameworks. do you have, like, do you name this as a specific thing that, hey, it should be MVP, it should just satisfy, suffice the requirements, that's it. It should be something that is built for the long term.
1: Yeah, I think we, we talk about skateboard, so build the skateboard, build something that satisfies at a minimum, um, and then we care a lot about love hmm. ter- much more than usage. So somebody is showing up to your website using your product every day, that's great. Are they going to complain if it goes away? Do they really fundamentally need this so badly that they're gonna make a fuss if it changes that's when you know you have something important that's when you know you have something valuable so we try to build skateboards that people will love but build the skateboard version of that because even if it's a minimal thing if it's solving a problem that's really important um they'll keep going through pain to do it And then you just constantly solve that pain better and better Um, make it more and more loved by more and more people right
0: that's a good one i know one person who was sort of a growth person at dropbox he actually when he got into dropbox the first email he sent to all his users was that hey how do you feel if you were not able to you couldn't use dropbox right now or from today onwards and based on that he sort of really understood that hey do we have product market fit or not so that's also getting good framework but actually i want to go back can you share how much were you getting paid when you first started at Bebo?
1: Yeah, so when I started at Bebo it was a unpaid internship actually okay. turned into a to a paid internship. Um like I said the the original pitch was let me come and watch. Mm. There was no expectation of you going to do any work or any effort. Um it was also supposed to be one month and then I just kind of stuck around for three months. So this uh was really meant to be an internship at the start and Once I started working there full time, um, kind of after that uh, intermediary period where I started high school, um, that's when I started getting paid and became a full-fledged member of the team.
0: Right. That makes sense. So, And let's talk about the entire process of you becoming the director of operations. How did that happen? How did you take on that responsibility?
1: Yeah. So like I kind of mentioned, I was a bit of a floating resource at Bebo doing whatever needed to be done, making myself valuable at all places. At the time, we we had two senior sysadmins on our team. Um, They'd both been doing DevOps and operations for 10 plus years at the time. Um, We're running all of our infrastructure in a great job. Um, But unfortunately, within about a month of each other, both of them retired. And so we suddenly went from having two very senior sysadmins um, to nobody on the DevOps team. This was an obvious spot where well, shoot, we need somebody to do this work. Who's going to do it? Loading resource. Let's go. <laughs> so our, uh, our CTO at the time, uh, a guy named Furkan on, turned to me and said, Johnny, do you want to do ops? And I said, yes. Um, once again, always say yes, and figure it out after. Um, so I was given this problem of figure out how to do ops for our company. Um, we're scaling up. We need this to be automatic. We need this to be working 24-7 and we need it to be, we need to make it so that every developer can easily do important actions. So we define important actions as scaling to a new region or a new geography, or creating new services. There's a new website or a new API or a new service that we need. A developer should be able to do that 24-7. So those were kind of the initial requirements that I went into um, and built Stark, that system that um, I spoke about at AWS reInvent, which automated all the DevOps for our company at the time.
0: That's pretty cool. And I believe this is what led to formation of your startup now. Can you talk about that? So what was yeah. the seed?
1: Yeah, so I think uh, Stark was very much, I call it version 0.1 hmm. of what Z does now. Um, it really taught me, wow, this team of 15 developers can do so much if they're not hindered by infrastructure. We um, were able to scale every region, we were able to scale thousands of servers who would have scaled the largest WebRTC client cloud at the time, um, thanks to powerful tools. When, uh, when we got acquired by Twitch and went to work within Amazon, Amazon has some incredible tools. You know, There is an insane amount of engineers dedicated purely to make deployment and development easier. When you're an engineer within Amazon, the amount of work to get a new service out to the world at a massive scale is minimal. You write your business logic, you write your code, you hand it off to, to this existing system, and it handles so much of it underneath. When, when COVID hit, un- though, I think many engineers got kind of bored with their day jobs and started working on side projects. Mm. I was no exception to this. I started working on a side project with a coworker at the time. Um, we were trying to build kind of a live video office replacement tool. I think many people tried to build things like that at the time, um, and what struck us was we had built a prototype and at the end of the day we wanted to go deploy the prototype so that somebody across the country could use it and we didn't have the amazon tools that we were used to and we were astonished by how weak the tooling was in the public market Um, we could not deploy the tool that we had with any existing cloud provider Roku didn't work fly didn't work render didn't work none of these satisfied our use case And so we had to go to AWS. And even though we were very experienced DevOps engineers at this time, spent years automating on top of AWS, the idea of setting up a whole account from scratch at 1130 at night was so monumentally daunting that we were just like, we can't do that. We're going to start a startup instead. Mm. (laughs) So uh, this idea of building tools to make cloud easier, more accessible, has been my through line for a long time. now with Zeet we're helping dozens of startups build much more easily across their cloud or actually multiple clouds um, with the new layer of abstraction that we've created with Zeet but very much kind of a, a result of that work back then
0: yeah that's pretty cool man how do you think about how do you how do you think about that time when Furcon first asked you that hey do you want to run ops and you were like I have no idea uh, but let's try it like what, what was going on in your mind again or you're like let's just say yes figure it out later very
1: much that. It was the uh, second best yes I've ever given. The first best being Johnny. Can you build BuzzFeed quizzes? Yeah. Yes.
0: <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. We actually actually want to know about the process of getting acquired by Twitch or Amazon. What was that process like?
1: Yeah, it was a it was kind of a funny process actually for me. Um, little little funny anecdote. So the day that we decided to out for acquisition and and make this kind of the next step of what Vivo is doing, um, we had a big team meeting in the morning where Sean and Furkan, our CEO and CTO, sat on the whole team and said, hey guys, we're going to go out for acquisition instead of continuing Vivo." Ironically, I wasn't in that meeting, I had a dentist appointment, and so um, I was getting filled up with laughing gas at the time, and I came into the office an hour or two later, Everyone was kind of quiet and reserved, and I wasn't really sure what was going on. And um, I remember walking into this meeting room with Sean and Furkan and kind of hearing this new news and not quite believing it, um, because I was still a little (laughs) bit hopped up on laughing gas. Yeah. And I was just (laughs) like, what a weird day. Oh. (laughs) Um, I think all in all, it was, uh, after that, it was much more positive. Um, we, We kind of all as a team realized that what we were doing with Viva with was very cool, but we needed to kind of bring in some more resources, give it off to somebody else who could take it to the next step. Um, we talked to a couple of different acquirers for that. I'm not sure how much of that is public, so I don't want to hmm. dig too much into exactly who. Um, but I think the biggest thing was we had to do a ton of interview practice. Um, even though it was acquisition, we had to go through technical interviews for all the engineers. Okay. And Having never studied computer right. science in my life, <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing with those. Um, it really opened my eyes to the difference between computer science and programming. Okay. I think technical interviews and whiteboard interviews are computer science. It's how do you do the best possible theoretical job of computing something. In real world, programming is very different. It's make it work. It's get something, make something that people like, make something that people love, um, make something useful. It's not necessarily the most efficient or the most theoretically optimal system. And so I was very used to living in the world of "We're going to make it happen." Any project you give me, I can promise you it will happen. Can't promise you it'll be the best, but it will happen. Um, and so that was a really big learning curve for me of having to go and spend hours grinding leak code and <laughs> studying uh, data structures and algorithms and what is a computer scientist supposed to know?
0: Right. It's weird right like you build this entire product and now they're asking they're interviewing you after acquiring it after finding that yeah it's valuable for us so but how was that process so uh how long did it take for the entire preparation and you mentioned that like i'm not sure uh, did you ever study that stuff before
1: um i'd seen it in that i knew it existed right and i had stayed <laughs> away from it okay okay makes <laughs> sense um, I very much wanted to make things that were helpful yeah. and add value. Right. And if computer science would get me there, I would do that, but I'd gotten to where I'd gotten to without it, and so it wasn't an obvious next step for me. Yeah. Um, it is very funny. Of We built this platform. We obviously were valuable. We got acquired for millions of dollars, but they still have to ask me, how do I move about an infinite chessboard? It's like, I don't know, dude. <laughs> I, I, just, I just make things that work. <laughs> um, so the, the whole process was I want to say a couple of months maybe of kind of conversations and negotiations figuring out what deal could we get in different places, um, what team members would go different places. We ended up I think taking a pretty good deal of we went to Twitch, um, very relevant for us in terms of business. Most of the team stuck together. Uh, we had a few people who decided to go off and start their own things um, but vast majority of the team stuck together and so I think it was a it was a good ac- exit for most everyone involved.
0: That's pretty cool. How much time did you spend in interviewing, and how was your how was your actual interview? Acquihar interview, sort off.
1: Um, let's see. I did. Maybe somewhere around a dozen actual technical interviews. Um, I'd say end of the day. Um, they were okay. Like I said, they weren't my my primary skill set. Hmm. I um, can do a great job of explaining what are we doing, why are we doing it. How's it helpful? Architecture hmm. projects. What the? What is it that Bebo does? Um, for the questions that I'd be asked would be like, you know, here's an infinite chessboard. What's the minimum number of steps to get from point A to point B, if you're a knight? Like, okay, it's an interesting question to think about. I've never had to answer that for my work. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> I, I I did okay on the interviews. Is probably my answer. Um, I don't know exactly how I scored. I got in <laughs> right you got it that's that's um, what we need i spent yeah i spent probably an order of magnitude more time on leak code and studying and practicing for those interviews and um, we did like interviews within our office within with me and more senior engineers or online or just practicing just trying to do everything i can to stack the odds of bebo in the right favor
0: okay to stack the yeah. odds uh do you mean that even the hiring of the team dependent on the actual acquisition of the company
1: Um, I don't think that that was really the case, it was more of a, I'm representing Bebo, Mm. I'm one of the team members of Bebo, Um, I want to do my best, I want us to come off as good, and I think we are good, let's prove that.
0: Makes sense. And what happened to Bebo after getting acquired by Twitch, were you guys still working on Bebo, or did you move to different teams or different products?
1: Yeah, so like I said, most of the teams stuck together within Twitch, um, initially at least, we came in to kind of build a similar product as to what we were building at the time, Um, Though we, after a couple of months, did actually transition into being our own unit within the company. Hmm. So we actually became the mobile game strike team. We're the only strike team within the company. But we basically operated as our own startup within Twitch, um, focused on mobile game expansion. So um, that was a really fun experience to kind of work as a startup within a bigger company. tell me a lot about the differences between startups and bigger companies. There's a lot more bureaucracy and a lot more process as you grow. Kind of has to be to handle the growth of people working on it. But um, I realized I wasn't able to have as much impact and I wasn't able to learn as much within a larger company. And so really wanted to, to start up.
0: Makes sense. What are some big things you have learned from overall building these social gaming in general, B2C products?
1: Um, I think there's a couple things I've learned. One is there's always exceptions. Mm. So I don't think there's ever a graph of user data that I've ever looked at that has 100% on it. Yeah, It could be a trillion people do one thing, there's always gonna be one guy who does a different thing. It's just how it works. So there's always kind of edge cases that I never thought people would do something so stupid, but they do. Um, it could be as simple as, press this button to get money and people will click the other button. Why? They just want to. So I think there's always exceptions. That was an important learning. Um, the other thing is I think especially in gaming and B2c products, people are much more friendly than I think you will assume. Um, we talked very closely with all of the users of Bebo. We had a discord community um, and I was one of the um, kind of chief moderators of that. but we would just talk to every user and we became friends with them and they would tell us what they wanted. We would tell them what we were thinking about. and we had a really great kind of communication loop there. We actually had a policy where every engineer on the team would have to be in the Discord and would have to be talking to users. If you are going to be shipping a product, shipping a feature, you are also in charge of writing the release notes for it, you're also in charge of announcing it to the world, and you're also in charge of any bugs that come up because of it. If somebody in support is complaining about a feature that you built, the CEO is going to at you in the Discord and say, at Johnny, fix it. It's your responsibility. You own that feature. And I think. That was a really important team building skill that I learned about how can you scale um, product development. And every engineer feels like they own the project that they're working on. Um, it becomes much higher quality. You never have to worry about who should I go to for this feature. Um, and as the number of features increases, or as the number of engineers increase, um, the quality feature stays very high.
0: That makes a lot of sense. The more responsibility you have as a startup, the more responsibility every person takes on. Uh, that just exponentially grows. It's really important. Uh, like I'm right I was right now working in a startup uh, for let's say a couple of months just doing consulting work and we actually use Discord and we found that Discord is a very good community to use for user research in general or what do we say, customer discovery. Because number one, because you're anonymous, you can people are really open about what they think. And that just gives you a ton of insights. I'm not sure uh, the community that you were in were people anonymous or not, but in my situation they were anonymous. So everybody could sort of portray themselves as a different person or they can also be very real about what they think. So that's always helpful.
1: Yeah, I think the anonymity is a, is a great piece. We had a somewhat anonymous community, um, kind of a mix. Um, is a great platform. We We actually run our whole company off of it today.
0: Okay. That's cool, uh, what do you think about, or why weren't you uh, down to continue with Amazon? Or is there a different world where you would just keep on working in big tech?
1: Yeah, so um, the thing I care about the most is how fast am I learning? Hmm. I wanna be able to look at Johnny from a week ago, Johnny from a month ago, Johnny from a year ago, and to say, Johnny of today is better than them for some reason. Hmm. I've grown, I've, I've learned something new. Um, that's really important to me. And so, rate of learning is kind of the core metric I think about when I think about what should I, where should I be spending my time. Bebo had an incredible rate of learning. There were constantly new problems. I was throwing the deep end and I had ton to figure out. I was constantly learning new things and constantly growing. Um, very rarely, if ever, did that check of, Johnny from a week ago, a month ago, a year ago? worse or better, very rarely would would the previous genre be better. Um, At Twitch, I think fairly similarly, I continue to grow. There's continue to be new challenges, but the quantity of them changed. Um, The challenges at a company like Twitch, coming from a startup, are much more, how do you work cross-functionally? How do you work within this big company? How do you navigate the bureaucracy? How do you find resources well? How do you um, learn how to work work within this system and after two years I had fairly well at least knew how to operate at my current level and it didn't feel like I was exponentially increasing and so I really wanted to find a way to just bombard myself and put myself in a situation where I had to grow, I have to learn and I don't think there's any better way to do that than a startup because every time you solve one problem you get to the next one and it's a whole new set of problems. Great, we built a good product. Now you have to go learn how to hire a team. Great, we hired a team. Now you have to go learn how to raise money. All right, we did that. Great, hire a team again. This time it's a new type of team. It's an executive team. Figure that out. The the problems are constantly changing and it doesn't feel like they're ever going to go away. So I think that's what I chase, that rate of learning and why I wanted to um, go back to startups.
0: That makes sense. How did COVID change you? Like when pandemic happened, you mentioned that you were at Amazon, you were at Twitch and suddenly you had a lot of free time and that's when the exploration started what was happening in those initial days or initial months
1: yeah i mean covid was a hard time for everybody obviously um i i actually got whooping cough right before covid and so i was quarantined for about 3 months before we officially were quarantined oh man so okay i wasn't able to go to our office for the entirety of 2020 like i i was quarantined since january 1st um of that year So I was a little bit more used to quarantine at that point than other people were when we started it, which was a little bit of a um, boon for me. Um, It was very hard. I was living with my family at the time. I actually moved out to move in with my co-founder during COVID. Mm. Um, But it was a great way to throw myself into a new problem of what is this thing that is gonna become Zeet. Um, I basically got to a point where I was just sending it to friends and asking them for feedback and they would send it to their friends and they would send it to their friends and so on and so on. Such that I was just inundated with messages all day and I was dealing with customer support all day that I knew I had to make I knew I had to leave and make this my full time gig. Um and I think being able to throw myself into that problem at the start of COVID was really helpful for my mental health of just there's something to do other than stare at the same four walls.
0: <laughs> Definitely. Definitely, man. Can you explain uh, how, yeah, how you think about Z today and what was it before and how it has the vision changed now? Like overall, I read that you're bringing code to the cloud, but let's go ahead into the deep roots of it. Uh, what were your thoughts when you started it and how has it evolved?
1: Yeah, so I think I mentioned um, when we started Z, there was a project that we wanted to deploy hmm. and it was a... Live video office product thing, Um, and so we looked at the existing tools, and I think Heroku is a great example of a tool that makes deploying to the cloud easy. Um, You just give them a GitHub repo, and they theoretically help you run it. So we actually tried to use Heroku and couldn't use it. Um, There's a existing issue with all of these platform as a service companies of there are certain technologies that they can't support. Um, I won't get too deep into the technical, but at a high level, UD- UDP ports, which is the underlying technology that supports live video and large amounts of data transfer, are not supported on any of these app platforms. Similarly, hardware accelerators, so anything to do with GPUs, which tends to be crypto, tends to be video processing, tends to be AI and ML, those are also not supported. So when we started, we really wanted to build the next generation of Roku. We were like. Heroku hasn't changed in the last five, 10 years since getting acquired by Salesforce. We can do a better job of this. We did that for about a year, um, scaled that to about 20,000 developers using it, um, and then realized that this model of an app platform that runs a managed Cloud that any developer can deploy into is fundamentally flawed. And So we shut down that Cloud and pivoted into a different model where our customers actually bring their Cloud provider, And we exist as a platform to help facilitate deployments onto your cloud. Um, This means that anything your cloud provider can support, Zit supports. Hmm. There's no technical limitations here. It also means that um, if we go down, you don't. You don't have to rely on us. You have to rely on AWS. And AWS is very trusted. Or whatever cloud provider you choose. Um, You can also see exactly what's happening. There's no black box infrastructure that's making it run. It's all configured in your account. If you want to, you can see exactly what's happening. Um, And then lastly, this has been really helpful for a cost perspective. We don't charge an exponentially increasing margin. You pay your cloud provider for your cloud costs, and we help you drive those costs down. Right now, if I'm a startup on Heroku, I have to pay $250 a month if I have more than one gig of RAM. That costs $30 on AWS. They literally charge a 10X premium for no reason other than the software and that they can. We can provide that same experience without that 10X margin um, and actively drive your costs down as you scale. So we pivoted to this different model um, in about July of 2021 and have been succeeding very well with it since, um, kind of onboarding new startups. I think uh, this idea of a new layer on top of the existing cloud providers and tools to facilitate deployments across cloud providers is really where we think the future is gonna be and where we are positioning ourselves.
0: Makes sense. And do you think this is also important to prevent a cloud provider lock-in or a vendor lock-in?
1: Totally. We see migrations as a major issue today. Hmm. Um, we see migrations tend to happen when you know, a company hits a certain scale and they get a contract from one cloud provider or another. Google will come in and say, hey, we'll give you 100K if you switch to Google Cloud. Great. Many companies want to take advantage of that. Um, unfortunately, it's a lot of work. They have to hire somebody to help them migrate. It might be a multi-month process. Site so might go down in between. Like, all sorts of issues can come up. By using Z, by telling us what services you want to deploy, by deciding what to deploy first and where to deploy second, hmm. um, operations are a breeze. So recently, AWS had an outage incident, and all of our customers were able to migrate to Google Cloud in about 15 seconds and mitigate that downtime um, because we know what the infrastructure should look like, we know what you want. We can translate that to AWS or Google Cloud or wherever cloud you
0: want. That's very interesting. I still remember like at Microsoft, my first project was in Azure and this is the exact conversation I was having with the Azure lead in Canada. And he mentioned that, hey, with this technology today, uh, if we are not really good within or overnight, a customer or a client can switch to AWS or GCP. So we need to be really good at what we do. And yeah, this is what we're seeing now. Uh, But yeah, what you're building is really cool. What is the sort of pushback, or is there any pushback that you are receiving from uh, AWS, GCP, or Azure?
1: Um, No, so we're actually partnered with most of the major clouds Hmm. and continue to increase those partnerships, I think. We are an interesting model too because we help the cloud providers um, fundamentally. Yes, somebody on Azure could switch to AWS. Mm. That also means somebody on AWS can switch to Azure. That's true. So it just makes this marketplace much more competitive. um, So it gives the cloud providers more ability. And I think what we're seeing is they're starting to compete in different ways. So Mm. instead of competing on pure reliability, they're really competing on um, additional services. So I think you'll see Google Cloud came out with their TPUs in the last couple of years of a ML-optimized chipset that is great for ML use cases if you're using TensorFlow. Um, AWS is constantly building new services like their managed blockchain or Amazon Poly or RDS to make it easier for application developers to build their applications. And what we're seeing with the model that we've created is most of the startups on us today will actually use multiple clouds at the same time to better leverage these specialized features of different clouds. Mm. So for example, we have a customer who um, has about $100,000 in AWS credits. And so they run all of their development and um, staging environments on AWS. Unfortunately, they have a very high bandwidth application and AWS bandwidth rates are pretty high. So they use DigitalOcean for their production servers because much less bandwidth. They also have some ML and AI use cases. And so they do all their uh, data jobs on GCP, because again, TPUs. Being able to leverage multiple cloud providers and whatever pieces of the different cloud providers that you want is massively helpful to these companies and something that really hasn't been possible before unless you have a platform on top of cloud providers like what Z is.
0: That's interesting. And what about Microsoft here mentioned about that are they, I, from what I know and I knew, uh, was Microsoft really focused on security and privacy? But what are you seeing now? How is Microsoft trying to stand themselves out in the competition?
1: I think that's that's pretty aligned. Um, we see a lot of security. We see a lot of compliance. Um, we see a lot of kind of enterprise. Um, I think enterprise compliance would be the, the, the easy answer. Hmm. Um, when you think about Microsoft's or Azure's user base, Many of the customers that they have, they got because of Office subscriptions back in like the 70s. And so there's a lot of older enterprises um, who care a lot about their data, but aren't really adopting the newest software cutting edge practices. And so they care a lot more about keeping what exists solid. Um, we I, I haven't mentioned Azure too much. Most of our customers are startups and so Azure hasn't come up too much. We've had a couple enterprise customers it though.
0: Okay, that makes sense. All right, so we talked a lot about the industry. How big is the team right now at Zeet?
1: We are remarkably small, actually. Um, We're about four people today.
0: Okay, Um, interesting.
1: We, I like to say our, was me, I'm the CEO. Um, My co-founder actually worked with us, worked with me from Bebo through Twitch and now Zeet together. Um, His name is Zihao. He's actually a Waterloo grad as well. Nice. (laughs) but um, we like to say that our third co-founder was our little Zeet logo. We have a little green octopus as our logo, and right. every time there's manual work to be done, we do it once, we put it into the software, and then Zeet does it forever forward. <laughs> um, so that's been able to, we've been able to use software once again to right. s- leverage our team very highly. Hmm. We, uh, we have a, another engineer on top of that, as well as somebody on the kind of BD and partnership side, but we're looking to hire quite a bit um, in the next couple of months. We're hiring right now for engineering roles as well as our first couple of marketing and DevRel roles. So, um, for now, we'll be larger by the next time
0: we talk. Definitely, definitely. That's that's pretty cool. Do you want to announce any rounds that you're raising right now?
1: Uh, I unfortunately can't quite announce, but we we are in the midst of closing around. I can't um, say quite who yet, but it, we're very excited about it. Um, we've got a pretty top tier BC coming in to lead our next round and um, so definitely keep your eyes tuned we'll have a we'll have an announcement in the next couple of weeks
0: that's great man and I also saw that you were involved with F. Inc. with Furkan how did that happen and how is that going what, what what's the work that's being uh, being done over there
1: yeah so founders Inc is an incredible program um, for, for founders Inc was started by Furkan who was the CTO of Biba so Alongside Sean, he's been one of my mentors throughout my career. Um, and, you know, similar to me at this time in Twitch together, we both kind of had the same realization of, you know, the learning rate isn't quite up to par is what we want. Hmm. Um, we want to get back into the startups. How do we do that? Well, Furkan really wanted to do lots of startups. And so he started Founders Inc. as a way to incubate more startups, just get a lot of smart people <coughs> together into one room and make awesome things happen from it. Zeet was one of the first studio companies in I think so we've had insane amount of support through Founders Inc on kind of um, the legal side on the financial side on the design side all the things that you need as a company but we didn't want to focus on at the time um, and now I'm actually in the Founders Inc office right now we've got a 10,000 square foot lab space in Fort Marina uh, Fort Mason um, in the Marina district of San Francisco with couple dozen companies here now um, nice. some of the best founders i've ever met and it's just an incredible community of really smart founders working together and building awesome things
0: that's really good and all right so let's let's start with the twitter phase so what's your goal with twitter right now how are you seeing the twitter uh twitterverse growing
1: yeah um so twitter's interesting it's been very intertwined with with zeet for the since the get-go
0: hmm.
1: um in the past, I did some kind of build in public talk about what we're doing with Zeet as we're doing it, show graphs, show metrics. And that actually garnered us a lot of our initial customers as well as initial VC interest. So that's been really helpful for us. Um, right now, I'm trying to use Twitter to get in front of more developers mm. as well as get in front of more people who need a chance. I think I was extremely lucky as a 14-year-old to be able to get in front of Sean Verkan and turn that into what I'm doing now. Um, I know that there are tons of people out there who have similar levels of passion and drive and potential um, who haven't gotten that chance. So part of what I want to do is give more people that chance, find who's going to be the 100x executors, and inspire them that they can do it. <laughs> um, it's very aligned with what we're doing with Z. We want to build tools so that those 100x executors can build whatever dreams they have um, through more more powerful tools while we work on getting zeet there um zeet exists as a company to that for that same mission as well so my hope is that i will get 30 emails from somebody um, who really wants to work with me for some reason and um is going to prove themselves i really hope that i'm able to find kind of the next the next version of me
0: Definitely, man. This is a very inspiring story that you have shared. And yeah, hopefully we can dive deeper next time when you come on again and you share the round that you have raised.